0: President Cyril Ramaphosa has once again placed South Africa in a national state of disaster in response to the catastrophic flooding in KwaZulu-Natal. More than 400 people have died, with the death toll still rising and thousands displaced. The destruction is likely to run into billions of rand and the damage to the port of Durban and its infrastructure will have a significant impact on the domestic and national economy. Ramaphosa has announced that one billion rand in relief funds will be immediately made available, but South Africans responded with deep concern, fearing that the funds will simply be looted, as they were during the COVID-19 pandemic. It will be critical as we undertake this work that all the resources we mobilise are used for their intended purposes and reach the intended recipients. There can be no room for corruption, there can be no room for mismanagement or fraud of any sort. This week on The Story, we'll talk to journalists and experts about what is happening on the ground and whether oversight structures will be enough to ensure public funds are not stolen. We're joined now by News24 journalist Luandile Bengu, who has been on the ground in KZN. Luandile, you wrote an article about the premier of KZN coming under fire for having a water tanker delivered to his home. Can you
1: tell us about that? Thanks for having me, Catherine. So the Premier's home in La Mercy on the 15th of of April, the allegation from the Ratepayers Association is that a water tanker was delivered to his home while residents were struggling to get water. In a very scathing statement, the Ratepayers Association alleges that while they were queued up in the hall waiting to get water, a tanker came and delivered its entire load to the Premier's house and when they inquired about when they could get water, they were told that the tanker is exclusively for the Premier. Now, initially the Premier denied these allegations saying that no, in fact the tanker had supplied water throughout the community and then his house was the last stop. But on Wednesday the Premier then um, reverted apologising, saying that he wasn't home when the tanker was delivered so sort of backtracking from his initial stance to say that um, no water was delivered to everyone and there was nothing wrong with what had transpired at his home, but he has since apologised. How
0: serious are the water shortages and how long until you think they'll be resolved?
1: Major parts of the south and the north, as well as the interior of the Ettegrini municipality, which has been the hardest hit, have experienced water shortages since Tuesday. It's almost been a week now. But uh, News24 uh, was able to speak to an expert in infrastructure who said that it shouldn't take longer than a month to fully restore water in the municipality, saying that some areas would obviously get water before others, but it should not take more than a month because most of the pipes that were damaged were weren't uh, main pipes so just to speak to the veracity of the water shortages in the in, in the areas in the areas we visited in case and you had people queuing in front of not only water tanks but also burst water pipes people having to jump into um, unstable river banks in order to access these water pipes which are running fresh water which have been which have burst. The municipality has gotten additional water tankers to help um, um, solve the issue, but it's a very serious issue and people are very much affected by it. And hopefully within the next month, if everything goes according to plan, most of the Etiguini municipality, if not all, will have its water restored.
0: So many people have been displaced,
1: we're talking about thousands, where are they being housed? There's close to about 40,000 people who've been displaced, that's the running figure. Those people are being housed at um, community halls, churches, schools, sort of temporary housing structures like we saw in the 2019 floods and in the 2017 floods, hopefully until they are able to build houses for them. We hope that with a state of national disaster being declared, people will be able to get housing as soon as possible but for now people are being subjected to stay in their local community halls if they haven't been destroyed.
0: Luandile can you describe some of the scenes that you've witnessed?
1: So when I came into KZN it was on a Thursday so it was during mop-up operations and we were fortunate enough to be one of the first people on the scene at Virginia Airport which is being used as a staging ground for the military, paramedics and SAPS. And the scenes that we saw there were people who had been rescued from an area called Gwangolosi, which had been inaccessible by car. And you could tell that apart from the injuries that they had sustained, these people were confused. Some of them had never even been in a helicopter before. They weren't sure where they were. A family that had not seen each other since Tuesday that uh, were separated from each other after the floods were reunited when all of them were rescued from different parts of the area. So it was a very heartwarming but also very sad moment to see how uh, people have suffered once again because of the floods. And then just traveling throughout KZN to see the extent to which people have to go to in order to secure fresh water. Because, in as much as the municipality has deployed JoJo tanks, they aren't coming frequently enough. So people are queued at burst pipes trying to get water. People are rummaging through what's left of their homes, what's left of their towns, what's left of their areas, trying to find clothing, trying to see if they can find anything that they can salvage. So um, the mop-up operations have been uh, ongoing. It's been a very devastating thing to to, to see, just to see how hopeless um, people look when looking into places that were once their homes.
0: Are those people who have lost so much, are they confident that the government will be able to fix the damage or are people really sceptical? I mean, do we even have the expertise and resources necessary to reconstruct the buildings and roads that have been destroyed?
1: I think given the history and the context of South Africa's government and corruption and how money has been swindled over the years, people are rightfully skeptical. But when you have nothing else to hold on to, when your government is the only person you have to to, to sort of trust, people are left in the situation where they don't have very much trust in, in government, but there's nothing they can really do about it. And from a skills point of view, um, the president has assured that various, uh, because it's now a national state of disaster, various um, people from the military, various people from within national government are coming into the province to assess Um. so we spoke to Outa this week who spoke about how the issue in South Africa isn't a lack of skills so it's not that we don't have people to fix the roads to fix the infrastructure the problem is the quality of work that comes out because more often than not money is swindled and a bridge that should have been built with 18 million is built with a million and the rest is pocketed so skills isn't going to be an issue it's just hoping that our government for once does the right thing to to its people. Alta said something very poignant in that this is an opportunity for government to prove itself to the people of South Africa, particularly the people of KZN who've gone through such devastation.
0: Well, let's hope they do restore our confidence. Thank you so much for your time and those descriptions of really sad and and poignant moments. That was Luandile Bengu, News24 journalist. We're now joined by Executive Director for Corruption Watch, Karam Singh. Karam, thank you so much for your time. There's been a lot of concern about relief funds not reaching their intended destination. After the corruption we saw during COVID, it's not really surprising. What are your thoughts? Is there just no trust left in the government? And should the public be as cynical as they are?
2: Well, I think it's very understandable that there's a cynicism and skepticism out there. I think we're at a all-time low when it comes to trust in our public officials, when it comes to safeguarding uh, public funds. Uh, We've seen continuously uh, during the course of our almost 30 years of constitutional democracy one corruption scandal after the other. And I think particularly now in the backdrop of the COVID-19 PPE corruption debacle, there's great concern, uh, particularly when it comes to the mobilization of a significant amount of resources to address something like a a national disaster. What we find is that government doesn't have good systems in place. uh, There's not sufficient preventative measures in place. uh, And that um, we, we only discover corruption once the funds have already been looted. And it's at that stage where we see the mobilization of institutions like the Special Investigating Unit to come and do investigations. But unfortunately, that's often way too late. The money's already been gone, the services haven't been provided, and it becomes very difficult to to recover the money. So I think, you know, given the state of corruption in the country, uh, the type of distrust that, that you're calling out um, is is understandable. Karam, what
0: are some of the things the government could do to prevent corruption?
2: So, I mean, one of the things that we've spoken about uh, going back to the, the PPE debacle and even before that is to ensure that there's greater transparency in the system by ensuring that there's publication of data by government, data data with regard to the allocation of funds uh, for, for relief, and then publication of information relating to any procurement that takes place, such that the procurement that takes place actually happens in the context of an open contracting type of framework. So when we talk about the publication of data, it's something which is within government's uh, capacity to do. We saw National Treasury run uh, dashboards in relationship to COVID-related spending. And it was through the publication of that data that uh, investigative journalists were able to uncover the the irregular spending in relationship to digital vibes. So greater transparency and publication of data is one thing. But then there's also really the issue of ensuring that we have capacity within government to monitor that data so we're not just talking about capacity uh, with from frontline departments but capacity at national treasury itself uh, monitoring capacity at provincial treasury and then ensuring that various oversight bodies are activated such as the auditor general which the president referred to the auditor general could do real-time audits of money that's being spent on relief we also have um, Parliament, which has an important oversight role to play. I'm thinking particularly around the Standing Committee on Public Accounts. And then there's also the Provincial Committees on Public Accounts, which I think would be relevant in the context of KZN. So on the one hand, transparency, and on the other hand, ensuring that there's greater oversight. You know, The other thing that the President's hinted at is the need to involve uh, a much broader uh, um, social compacting approach, so involving the private sector involving civil society, uh, uh, not only in in oversight, but also in terms of the very administration of these funds. Um, so we, the president spoke about uh, the potential role that the Solidarity Fund could play. In some cases, I think they're very reliable partners uh, who've got uh, great experience in this area, such as Gift of the Givers and the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Society, that government could also rely upon uh, to administer funds in a way which would be, you know, nothing is ever completely uh, free from from the potential of corruption. But we know that the solidarity fund in particular had a good track record, and that it's possible that, that that they could have better systems in place than government has at the moment to monitor spending.
0: Karam, will Corruption Watch be monitoring the situation closely? Do you have plans in place for that?
2: As, as much as possible, we, we will. Uh, I mean, there are at least a couple of different structures that we've been invited to be a part of. I've just come from a meeting of the South African Human Rights Commission, which is uh, engaging with human rights defenders in KZN to understand their experiences on the ground. So that's something that we're staying close to. We've also been in conversations with the Department of Performance, Monitoring and Evaluation within the presidency to assist in, in setting up a corruption risk mitigation register. So identifying what some of the key issues are, uh, networking with key stakeholders, again, from from civil society, from government and from business to identify what the key risks are and then talk about what some of the risk mitigation strategies can be to to address these issues.
0: But the thing is, you know, so much has been damaged from roads, schools, government buildings. So the recovery efforts could potentially open the floodgates for tenders and the potential for looting schemes. Has our experience during COVID taught us anything? Uh, You know, with the majority of culprits still walking the streets, there really does seem little incentive to toe the line.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it goes back to what I've been talking about in terms of transparency and about having preventative systems in place. If you're publishing data up front, data around uh, tenders, uh, publishing data around... Who's getting those tenders? It becomes more challenging for uh, crony type of schemes to come in and fly-by-night operations to then uh, get contracts, like we saw in the PPE situation. If all of that information is out in the public domain, if it's if it's if monitoring systems are being put in place by government to quick to, to scrutinize those tenders from from inception to award. Then um, at least it creates a possibility to identify uh, irregular transactions and identify red flags. What's been our lesson from from the COVID nineteen corruption is that all of our efforts are after the fact; they're post facto. So we're, we're we're effective at investigating uh, uh, corruption, but uh, but as you've said, once uh, um, once the, the, the corrupt schemes have already taken place the money's already been stolen, it's been dissipated in numerous bank accounts through money laundering and criminal syndicate schemes, then it becomes very difficult to to recover that money, let alone push for uh, uh, accountability and consequence management, because we also know that our justice system has been under pressure and that the MPA itself has struggled to kind of keep up with the caseload that's required uh, to to effectively execute its mandate. So, so the lesson that we've learned is putting more emphasis on preventative measures before the money's stolen.
0: And what are your predictions? I mean, do you think there will be tender fraud as there was in the past? Or do you think, you know, we've got a chance?
2: I think we're entering into a very dangerous territory. You know, what's, what's interesting to me and what's somewhat encouraging is that we're having this debate and that this, this, this issue has taken up uh, the entire kind of body politic. Prior to the corruption even taking place, when COVID-19 happened, Corruption Watch was one of the few bodies that said very early on, we need to be really careful here because there's a risk here that corruption could take place. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those uh, those warnings were borne out. I think in this case, you know, we're just one of many bodies that's calling this out, that's saying we need to do much better. We need to ensure that we've got better systems in place, so um, we have a better chance this time around. But based upon our recent track record, I wouldn't say we have a, a we can be overly encouraged that we're not going to face some of the same challenges again.
0: Well, hopefully we don't. And thank you so much for your time and those insights. That was Executive Director for Corruption Watch, Karam Singh. That's all we have time for this week on The Story. Join us again next week. I'm Catherine Rice, and this week's episode was recorded by Alyosha Colstock.